Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, Church Gathering. So glad you could be here. For those of you that are visiting today, really happy to have you uh, just worshiping with us. We're glad that you're here. For those of you that have been here for years and can't seem to get away, we're glad that you're here too. Um, For those who are visiting, uh, we're uh, one of many churches here in Santa Barbara who just really want to know Jesus Christ together, learn what that means, and conform to his life and mission Uh, And one of the ways that we do that, one of the primary ways that we do that is by getting in his word, by getting in the scriptures, in his revealed word. We do that all throughout the week through uh, classes and uh, through devotional uh, uh, practices, through home groups. But we also do that on Sunday morning. It's a part of our our worship uh, experience with the Lord, and we devote quite a, a significant amount of time to that. And it's usually by, you know, we, we may have a, a few topics here and there, but largely it's by going through whole swaths of Scripture, right? So it might be a section of the Bible. We might choose a whole book to go through. Um, and that is what we've been doing for the past couple months. We've been going through the book of First Peter. We're right now in the middle of chapter 2. And you can actually go ahead and turn there. We're going to pick it up in chapter 2. But while you're turning there... For those of you that maybe have not caught any of the, the past sermons, super easy catch up right now. First Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a bunch of Christians scattered all over Asia Minor. And he keeps calling them exiles and sojourners. Uh, not, not just geographically speaking, although that, that could be true about them, but specifically uh, socially speaking. They were outcasts. They were ostracized. They were uh, on the margins of society because of their choice to follow Jesus. And so it is because of their desire to follow Jesus and to take his word seriously and to uh, realign their values with the values of his kingdom, uh, they're finding themselves suffering as a result of it socially, relationally, uh, in their family, uh, and in a variety of different ways in the context in which we live. And so this letter has largely been a letter from Peter to Christians telling them, here's how you navigate that tension. And so we've been using this, this saying that came up in the, uh, one of the first sermons that Christians are, and we could s- say this about ourselves in Santa Barbara and Goleta and Isla Vista and Montecito and abroad, that we are, uh, we are simultaneously sent to the city in which we live but set apart, right? So we, are, we don't belong here. We're citizens of a different country, amen? We're citizens of, of heaven, and yet we're intentionally sent to be a light here. And so we're sent but we're set apart. And this whole letter is then a, a call and an explanation on how to navigate that tension, what it looks like and what it means for Christians to live in that tension, to be somewhere and yet to be called uh, to another place and set apart to another place. We're right in the middle of that. That is basically the series. Uh, and we're moving into a section of Scripture where Peter is now going to talk not about us individually, but as us as a corporate body, as a church. And he's got a lot of things to say in here. Um, He pulls more from the Old Testament in in the verses that we're going to read than in just about anywhere in this letter. It's just rich with Old Testament allusions. I'm going to try to refer to some of them, but there's dozens of them. I can't refer to all of them. So this week, read through this passage, and just as a, a fun practice, If you have a cross-reference Bible or a tool, just go through the section that we're going to read and just just look back at some of those Old Testament passages. 
If you don't have cross-references in your Bible, you can go onto a number of different websites, uh, BibleGateway.com, Blue Letter Bible. They'll usually have a little tool there to show you cross-references, and you can see all of the different ways that Peter refers to the Old Testament, and what is it doing? It's showing us that this is a, a story. It's not a bunch of isolated texts. It's not the Old Testament Bible and the New Testament Bible. It is one compelling story of sacrificial love. Uh, and that is a, a great way to, to stir up in your heart God's single intent and purpose um, in the whole Bible. But right now, I'm going to read the text. It's a very large one, uh, but it's in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 4 through 12. I'm reading out, out of the ESV, for those of you that are wondering, uh, but it will be on screen if you don't have a Bible. I'm just going to read through all of these verses, and then we'll pray And look at what the Lord uh, is saying to his church. Peter says this. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, bless you, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, But now, you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we have seen, we have heard, we have read. Now we ask that you would impress, and you would drive, and you would push, and you would cause to come to life our hearts by your living and active word. As, a, as the apostle de- declared, your word is like a, a, a double-edged sword, sharper than a double-edged sword, and able to pierce through between bone and marrow, able to go even between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, sometimes the distance between our thoughts and our hearts and our intentions is scattered. We're deceived and we sometimes deceive ourselves. We're confused. We don't even know what we're going to do tomorrow. And yet you know all things. You even know how our hearts work better than we do. And so we're asking that by your holy word you would heal our hearts. Cause our minds, our thoughts, our intentions, and our hearts to be perfectly aligned even as they are submitted to our great King pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I haven't uh, brought up my kids in a while, so I thought I would today. Uh, I have two. One is Abby, she is three and a half, and the other is Jude, and he is uh, two, almost two years old. Abby has been doing this thing where she's, she's been loving all the creatures of the world, and right now her favorite creatures are snails and ladybugs. And so she likes to pet them and like let them crawl all over him, and Jude likes to smash them and kill them, you know? And, most of my days are spent like trying to keep those two apart from each other, especially when there's bugs involved. And so uh, she's been just loving these ladybugs and like counting the dots and coming, letting, they're like crawling all over. And she's like, Daddy, look, it's a ladybug. And one day she, you know, and she's trying to do this as she's hiding from Jude who just wants to smash. And, you know, one day she, uh, I wasn't there, I was in the kitchen and she was outside with mom, with Brianna. And Apparently, she found a ladybug without any spots, and she was really intrigued by this, but kind of disgusted, too, like, not a real ladybug, and she ends up smashing it, just like Jude, and just with no, like, with no hesitation, with no reluctance, and, and Brie was like, what's happened, what's this turn of events in you, and she, uh, she, she came to me to the door, and I didn't know what had happened, but she walks up to the kitchen door, and she's like, Hey, Daddy, I found a ladybug with no spots. And I'm all, oh, that's awesome, baby. Show me. Where is it? She's all, it got smashed. And I'm all, why, why did it get smashed? I thought, Jude. And she's like, well, I killed it. And I said, why did you kill it? And she's all, uh, I was done with it. And so I killed it like Elsa killed her sister. You know, like the, the Frozen movie. And right now, like this vernacular, this language from a three-year-old, I'm like very uncomfortable killing and just smashing and I'm done with you. And I probably shouldn't have asked such a deep, question, unpredictable question, but I was like, killing things that you're done with? Like, what are you, like, you going to do to me when you're done with me, you know? <laughs> and she looks at me and she's all, Daddy, I'm not going to smash you. You're not a ladybug. And she just walks off to find the next creature to smash and... I'm just left there in the kitchen just trembling like, Lord, have mercy. Please don't let her hate me when she's 16. <laughs> Abby and the ladybug. What does this have to do with the text? Uh, nothing, actually. I just wanted to share it. <laughs> it's completely irrelevant to what we're talking about other than being a, a cute, heartwarming story. The tr- <laughs> the tr- The truth is, that's actually what a lot of people think about Christianity. And specifically, what a lot of people think about the church. It's heartwarming, there's some good stories to tell, but by and large, it's irrelevant to to human living. See, there actually was a point to my story. In 2014, Barna Research Group found that among U.S. adults... 51% of them say that church is either not to or not all that important. With that number growing throughout the generations bigger and bigger. And when they begin to press that question deeper, asking kind of the why behind uh, its, its lack of importance to people, and they ask this across every age and multiple denominations, why people didn't attend church, one of the two, most common re- the two most common reasons were, I either find God elsewhere, it's not in, in, in the church that I find God, or church is just not relevant to me personally. And while there might be some heartwarming, adorable stories, and oh, that's so cute, a, lady, a ladybug, essentially, it is irrelevant 
for many people. Now, before we start to condemn people for feeling that way, we have to ask, are there valid reasons for that? And I think there are. You speak to people outside of the church, knowing the the purpose of the church, which is what we're going to get into, seeing that disconnect, it's not their fault. Unless we want to think that God makes mistakes, it's not God's mistake. Uh, it's not God's fault either. There certainly are valid reasons why people would feel a disconnect between their lives and the church, or even that they could find God elsewhere and not in the community of believers. Valid reasons, and even if they're wrongly directed, they they should steer our minds up to pay attention. We should listen, and I believe that this section of Scripture deals largely with some of the big cultural questions that are asked about the church. And if I can arrange Paul's lengthy uh, 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 section of, of passages or verses here, I could say we could organize it in this way, if you can follow this flow. He's, he's pointing out what is the church, the question that we might, might be asking. What is the church? You know, is it a building? Is it a group of people? Is it this? Second, why do we need it? Why is it important? Why is it relevant? And three, if we're persuaded by those first two answers, how does it apply to me? Or how can I be involved? Or what does it mean to participate in it? That's, I think, what Peter is speaking about. And we're just going to answer those things as we go through uh, the word that he was speaking. What is the church? Why do we need it? Why should we care? And how does it apply to our lives? And he starts immediately in verse 4 by saying, as you come to him, as you come to Christ. And again, he's addressing Christians who have, are suffering for their identification with Jesus, speaking to them. And he's essentially saying, if you have been saved, right? If you have come to Christ, in other words, if you have been saved, you've had that born-again experience. And as soon as he says him, Jesus, he goes on this massive digression that starts right there all the way through verse 8. He was talking about the church, he brings up Jesus, and then he goes on this giant tangent speaking about Jesus. I love this because he's almost in a roundabout way saying, hey, before you can even understand yourselves and how you guys are supposed to relate to one another and what your purpose is as a community, we've got to go back to Jesus right now. And Peter's been talking about Jesus since the beginning, and here he takes a massive digression And it goes on a tangent telling us, this is the guy. This is the person who is chosen and precious to God, yet simultaneously rejected by people, rejected by men. And then he speaks about that the dividing effect that Jesus has everywhere he went and everywhere he goes. You either love him or you hate him. You either embrace him and everything that he taught or you reject him and everything that he taught. And you say, well, I, I... accept some of the things that he said, and I reject others. Jesus would say, you can't do that. I am the, you have to accept the full package. And so we see this dividing effect that Jesus has on everyone everywhere he goes. You either reject him or you accept him. And Peter has been speaking at length in the first chapter about what it means to accept him. It means that you are brought into this special relationship a covenant relationship with the God Almighty in which you are, you are, are growing in this transforming union. So, so being a Christian then, we, we've talked about this, is far more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just finding things agreeable about a particular religion. It's more than just checkmark, uh, check, checkmark boxing a list of doctrines and saying, I agree you know, with these seven. 
It is actually a, a supernatural transforming relationship, a transforming union in which God enters into your soul and you in some mysterious way are also in him, union. And he has been spending a lot of this time, the Apostle Peter, explaining what it means to grow in union, this, this mysterious, trans, uh, transcendent, multifaceted process. Uh, he has been trying to, to pull down to our uh, to our, our, our understanding using a bunch of metaphors. And he's, he's been drawing a picture of what growing in union is like, using metaphors that we've heard so far, like being exiles, uh, agriculture, the growth of, of plant life, and a nursing infant, uh, food. And now he's going to use this, this picture of the temple to just kind of further push down into our hearts what it means to grow in Christ. And he does this with this metaphor of the temple, answering these questions, what is the church? And he starts by saying that you, right here in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. I love this because he, he just told us that Jesus Christ is the living stone. And now he's saying that for those who have come to Christ, You yourselves are like living stones. You yourselves, like living stones, are growing into the spiritual house. He's comparing us to the life of Christ. He's essentially saying that for those of you who have been born again, you have come to him. Christ's life is yours now too. The inner life of Christ is now a part of your life. It's not two individual people, but he is in you and you are in him. This is, again, union with Christ, his life in us and our life in him. The life that I live by the flesh, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have been crucified. This life is no longer, I I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he says, you as living stones, that, that new life that has erupted on the inside of you and has brought you to life from spiritual death, he then refers to that. And this will be the last time he refers to you as an individual. He goes on in the next line saying, you are now being built up as a spiritual house. There's that analogy, that metaphor. He's using the metaphor of construction and architecture and buildings to speak about us. And he says, uh, he says you are being built up like a spiritual house. Now, he's, he's certainly referring to the temple in the Old Testament. That temple was the center of Hebrew worship. So central to Hebrew worship was it that there was no Hebrew worship apart from the temple. You had to be in or around the temple if you wanted to relate to God. There was no relationship with God apart from that. So if you were on a mountain, you know, on the other side of Galilee, or you were in your closet somewhere praying, it didn't matter. You had to be, you had to access God through the temple. Because the temple was where God's active presence was. If you wanted to see him and wanted to know him and wanted to feel him, wanted to hear him, it was in the temple. That was where he chose to reside. And so the presence of God was manifest in this little building or sometimes a very big building. Now God is present everywhere, we'd say, and King David would say in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? You're everywhere. You know, if I, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there too. But what this is speaking of is his active presence to bless. He's not just 
around, but he's there in a specific way to bless people who are there to meet with him. And that spiritual house then means God's presence is with us. No longer is God just locked in a particular temple in a certain part of the world, but Peter is saying, you're being built. Listen to, listen to this. He's saying, you're being built into the temple. Meaning, God's active presence is now dwelling with you. No longer do you have to go to a certain place like a temple or a church building or anywhere to find the presence of God. He is with you. And so spiritual house speaks of just that, that coveted presence of the living God that is now made more accessible to God's people. And as he speaks about the spiritual house, Peter is, though he may not realize this at the moment, clearing some common distortions that we have about how God relates to us today. One of the ways, one of the distortions we have is individualism, where we have the, we have the tendency, and this isn't true all over the world, but it is true in America and many Western parts of the world, we tend to have an individualistic way of thinking. It's about me. The filter that we, we view the world is largely through ourselves, Compare that to other countries where the, their filter is through community or society. Ours is through ourselves. And so the, the highest value that we have is ourselves. And so we even carry that unknowingly sometimes into our reading of the Bible. We read every verse about pr- primarily about ourselves. Now, it's, it's for you, but it's not primarily about you. That's the beauty of it. You want to be most healed and most fulfilled and most satisfied? You've got to get your eyes off of yourself and onto the things of God. That's the counterintuitive beauty about being in relationship to God. But that's one of our biggest hang-ups. Is we might even read this and say, oh, I am a spiritual house. That is so novel. <laughs> so happy, God, that you chose me. I partly expected it because I'm so wonderful and spiritual. But you know what Peter says here is he he doesn't say anything about you individually. When he says the word you yourselves, he's actually saying uh, the word in the original language is plural. And it's a really hard word to translate into English because we don't have an equivalent form of the plural for like a second person pronoun. Now, some states in the United States do, thinking of Texas and uh, many other southern states, whenever you want to refer to someone else in the second person, but to a bunch of people, what would you say? Y'all, thank you. We need a Texas translation of the Bible. Because all throughout the letters that uh, the apostles wrote to the church, there's actually very few times where an individual is being spoken to. It's always y'all. All of the imperatives, it's always y'all, and this is exactly what Peter is saying. He's not saying you are a temple, and you are a temple, and I am a temple, and we're all a bunch of these individual temples living for ourselves. You know, it's a crowded block right now. He's saying we, this highly communal identity, we together are the temple in which Christ dwells. What is a church? Well, it's not an individual person. I am not the church. I am not the bride of Christ. We, together, with all who call upon Christ's name, we are the church, the body of Christ, 
uh, the bride of Christ and all the other metaphors that the Bible speaks about. The church is not a building either. It used to have a, a similar equivalent in the temple, but no more. God's spirit dwells within that corporate gathering of people when they're gathered and when they're scattered. The church is not a building. And how many of us uh, believe that and know that, and yet still the language is still just locked up in the way that we relate to, to church? Like how many of you say you know, to your kids or to each other, let's go to church today, or let, we're going to church tomorrow? We're, we're thinking even subconsciously that it's a building, but it's not the building. We just happen to have a building, thank God. Nor is it, you know, nor is the staff, uh, nor is the church the staff or the, the paid pastors or any of, you know, a special group of people with special callings. Those are people in the church, but we, again, are the church. And I hear this sometimes when people say, Questions like, what, what is the church going to do about this? Well, they're, you know, in one way or another, they're, they're saying it in such a way as they believe the church is largely the leadership, right? But Peter says the church is us. We, together, are the body of Christ. And not just us, we're a local expression, but believers all over the world and throughout history. It is a group of people who have simply been born again and brought into covenant community with a holy God. Incredible. The church is God's covenant people throughout the ages, as expressed right now through this local body and many others like it. This uh, reminds me of a story uh, told of a, a visiting king hearing about the famed walls of Sparta. And upon visiting the mighty city, all he could think about was wanting to see the city walls. And he, uh, coming there, saw no walls and no city. And he asked the king, uh, the Spartan king, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? To which the Spartan king replied by pointing to his army and saying, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man is a brick. Now, this is the same type of thing that Peter is saying. Although it's not so much that we're an army that's on the defensive or fighting so much as it is, everyone in the church has a role to play. Every one of us is integral to this thing that God is building to house his presence and to further his mission. Exciting. Say, well, how do you know if you're in the church? Well, anyone who comes to Christ, who experiences that union with Christ, is come into the church. If you've, ex- if you've been born again, if you've experienced union with Christ, you have been brought into the church. I say this because another question that I get is, how do I join, uh, how do I become a church member, right? I'll get that question periodically. Or how do I, you know, how do I become a, an official part of the church? How do I become a church member? Where do I sign? What class should I take? And that's a, a typical, traditional understanding of membership, like, we come, we, we hang out, but then at some point we sign a contract or we, we, we pass a test or we go to a class and uh, if we do all of the right things, then we move from like kind of a Christian attender on the outskirts to a full-fledged member. Wrong! Here's what I say to people. If you have been born again, you are a member of the church. If you have been born again, you are by... By the descriptions that we see in in the scripture, you are already born into as a member of the church. 
And so I'll usually tell people, uh, if, you know, because they usually mean like a local expression, a local church. I'll say, well, if you've been born again, and you like it here, and you want to go here, and you attend here regularly, then you are a member. You are a member by virtue of the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in your heart. The question is not, how do you become a member? You're already a member if you're a believer. The question is, are you a functional member or a dysfunctional member? Those are the only options, man. And Peter will get into kind of what that looks like, what it means to be a functioning member of the church. We'll get to that later, but kind of that idea of the church as God's people, not just some physical demarcation uh, as being the church. Now, that that actually has some other big implications, and this is the the second and final uh, common distortion that we have um, in American Christianity, and that is nationalism. First one was individualism. The second one is nationalism. Now, I'm not speaking about patriotism. It's great to be proud and happy uh, uh, for your country, and I am. I love living here. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. I'm not talking about being a patriot. I'm talking about that feeling of superiority. You are better than everybody else. And specifically what I'm talking about is the tendency to associate that superiority with God's blessing. We are better because we are God's country. You often hear this uh, in a lot of political discourse. You know, when there's elections or things like that happening, you'll often hear people trying to sway your opinion, do this or think that or vote this way or get rid of that. And whatever it is that they're, they're uh, attempting to get across, they will try, uh, sometimes attempt to motivate you by saying, because we're a Christian nation, right? You ever heard that? We need to do this, or we need to come back to that because we are a Christian nation. Now, to that I want to ask, what do you mean by Christian nation? If by Christian nation you mean we're a nation that has a lot of Christians in it, I would say, yes, Christian nation or a lot of professing Christians in it, I should say. But if you mean, and that's generally not what people mean when they, when they speak of America as a Christian nation, generally, they mean something different. The Christian ethicist uh, for the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, Russell Moore, answering this question, put it this way. He said that most people, when they see Christian nation, mean the idea that God was in a special covenant with the United States of America. And he was in that special relationship in order to bless the United States of America as a special people, as a new Israel, so to speak, as a group of people covenanted under Christianity with special privileges. And if that's what you mean by Christian nation, the answer to that is no. Now, the founders of our country were deeply influenced by ideas that came out of Christianity, but they did not found it as a Christian nation under the terminology that we're speaking about. And that's why we see no religious tests for office holders. That's why all the way at the beginning they established a separation between certain powers, the church and the state, something that actually comes from the Old Testament between kings and priests, and then you have those prophets in the middle that are there to kind of fire bullets whenever people are abusing their power. It's an awesome little trifecta there. Um, but don't 
take that anointing upon yourself if you feel so inclined. Unless you want to lose all your friends. (laughs) So, this really gets most problematic. This is where I'm going with this. When we take promises in the Old Testament and we apply them to our country, those that were meant for the nation of Israel, okay? Uh, One of the common ones, and this usually happens during the National Day of Prayer as we pray, What's that verse that we love to pray? It's a really good one. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so we often pray that prayer for our country, that we would repent of our sins and that uh, the promise that God held out for us, we're assuming, would come upon us. He would forgive our sin and heal our land. There's only one problem with that. It's not about America or Czechoslovakia or Russia or China. It was initially about Israel and God's, specifically God's covenant people. Now, God's covenant people in the Old Testament was manifest in the nation state of Israel. But as Christ comes into the world and his spirit falls upon all flesh, we, sh- we see a shift. In the, in the relationship between God and humanity, where God isn't just specifically relating to a nation state, but by the virtue of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of Abraham actually begins to creep out to all flesh, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, all who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And so in that way, as was God's plan from the beginning, God's blessing, his kingdom, is now made accessible not just to one single nation, but to the world through that nation. And we see this in our text. When Peter starts to quote a bunch of phrases, I want you to listen to these phrases, and he begins to apply them to the church. Look at what he says in verse 9. But you, or y'all, and who's he speaking about? He's speaking about the church gathered in all four corners of the world. Look at what he says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. You recognize those terms? Those are terms from Exodus chapter 9, from Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 7, terms that were specifically used for the nation of Israel. He is now identifying us with God's covenant people. So, can we pray 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14, this prayer of repentance? Of course we can. But who's it for? America? No. Now, there are other passages we can pray for our country, but this one is about the church. It's, about, it's specifically about, I should say, God's covenant people, a manifestation of which is the church later. But this is a prayer of repentance for us. The prophet wasn't saying, hey, pray that your country will get it right. He's saying, pray that God's people will repent. Uh-oh. Saying, pray that God will forgive your sin and heal your land and that you would seek his face and turn from your wicked ways. He's not talking about all these unbelievers around us. He's talking about us. 
The same one who would later say in Revelation, I am standing at the door and knocking that somebody would let me in. We often take that to be an evangelistic passage in Revelation that Jesus is knocking on the door of the non-believer's heart. But that is right in the middle of of, of Jesus' uh, declarations to the church. He's knocking on our hearts saying, let me in. So pray this prayer, but pray it for us. Pray it for all the churches in Santa Barbara. Pray it for the churches in persecuted nations. Pray it for the global body of Christ. Now, I want to be careful here. This is not teaching, Peter is not teaching, that the church replaced Israel. What he's saying is, the church is a continuation of Israel's story. God's plan from the beginning with the nation of Israel has expanded its reach to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you should be thanking God for that because that's why you are saved. What is the church? A church, the church is a group of undeserving people who God in his mercy has chosen to dwell with. You say, well, why does the church exist? There was a little bit about our identity. What what does it mean? It's not a building. It's not a staff. You know, it's not all of these things that we associate with church. Church is a a corporate body of believers that God dwells with because they're born again by his spirit. But why why does he dwell with us? Why do we exist? Then he goes on to say, you are a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. The priests were the ones who, were the, they were the only ones who could enter into the temple and they had one job. It was to mediate between God and other people and they did that by offering sacrifices. And in Leviticus, in the first seven chapters, we see all of these various sacrifices. You might have stumbled across that and been like uh, super weirded out by it or maybe skipped to another section of the Bible uh, not knowing what it is, but a really important part of the Old Testament. This is that section tells us how a holy God and a sinful people can be in relationship to one another. There must be sacrifice for our sin. And there is so much sacrifice for sin. There's burnt offerings in chapter 1. That's a, a, a sacrifice you would make uh, for general sins. Then there were sin offerings in uh, chapter 4. These were uh, uh, sacrifices to atone for specific sins. So there's one sacrifice where you're like, I don't, I don't know, I probably sinned. I'm pretty sure that I did. I just don't know what it is. I'm just going to sacrifice something to cover all my bases. And then there's another type of sacrifice that's like, I totally did that. Yesterday at 2.30, I, I for sure better offer this sacrifice. You know what? I'm going to offer the other one in general too, just to make sure it's all covered because I'm a sinful person. And then there's a third type, a sacrifice for trespass passes where you don't just sin against God, but you actually do something that hurts somebody else. And so it's a sacrifice with restitution. Maybe you, you, you pay money back or something. All of these different ways to be made right with God. And this is often what we think of when we think of sacrifices, sin, 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 sin. And there's certainly a lot of that. What a lot of us maybe tend to overlook are the other two types of sacrifice that have nothing to do with sin. They have to do with worship. One is the grain offering where you didn't sin, you just voluntarily decide, I want to show my devotion to God. And you would come to the temple, you would offer a grain offering. 
Then there was a peace offering. This was a voluntary act of worship showing thanksgiving to God. And so there's these other sacrifices where you would praise, you would give thanks, you would just worship out of the pure devotion of your heart because you love God. These were free will acts of devotion. They were ways we could experience God's presence. And then when Jesus came, the lamb who takes away once and for all the sins of the world, he did away with that, the the sacrificing of animals, bulls and goats, And once and for all, we were able to be brought into the presence of God, free of shame and free of guilt, found in him no longer having to make sacrifices for our sins. And yet, there are still sacrifices that we can make in relationship to God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as is your spiritual act of worship. And so there's all of these things. We're not atoning for our sin. We're offering the very best that we have to show God we love you. We are so thankful for you. We are so dedicated to you. We are committed to you. You are everything. This is somewhat what uh, Peter is saying right now when he says, as this new priesthood, you're not offering bulls and goats. You are offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ are free will acts of devotion, of obedience, of love. One of the common traits in worship in the Old Testament, even though there were different types, one thing that they all had in common was that you were supposed to bring the very best that you had. It didn't matter if you were offering a bull for a burnt offering or a ram for a trespass offering or grain, whatever. You had to bring the very best you had. It couldn't have any blemishes. It couldn't have any setbacks. It had to be the first of your pick. It had to be the choice pick. You couldn't just say like, hey, Mars Ranch, time for sacrifices. You know, you know what? Just grab the three-legged one over there. You know, and the one with the weird twitchy eye. Like, give that one to God. Before you did anything with what belonged to you, the very best that you had was God's. And truly, everything that we have is God's. He graciously gives us all. Let's just keep a lot of it. And out of worship, we say, here, Lord, this is for you. See how worship is not primarily about us, but it's primarily about God. And yet, counterintuitively, when we tap into that, it benefits us the most. We often associate worship with mere singing, and it includes singing. I don't know if you noticed, but we sing a lot here, like an hour. We love to sing. The fruit of lips singing praise to your name, God. Sacrifice of praise. We love our time to sing. But it's important to notice that that singing is meant to be an outward reflection of an inward reality. We only sing when our mouths are lined up with our hearts. That's why the prophets were always saying, Jesus too. You who, uh, who, who, who worship and praise and pray to me with your lips, but dishonor with me with your hearts. Not worship, right? We sing because we are, uh, we're, our lives are first devoted and uh, obedient to the Lord. And it's an outflow of that. 
We, are, we also worship out of a sense of sacrifice, giving, some, giving uh, what is valuable to us. And this could be, you know, back then it was the first of the litter. Uh, for us, it's what are the valuable things? It's our time. It's our talent. It's the things that we're good at, our giftings. It's also our treasure, things that we love and cherish, our possessions. This is the pattern we see in the Old Testament. It's more than merely singing. It's giving to God what is most valuable to us because God is more valuable to us than our things. We actually see a beautiful example of this in Samuel when King David was... uh, uh, on the run, and he stops to make a burnt offering, a sacrifice to God. But he needs a place to do it, and so he looks for a threshing floor, this wide open space, and he finds one. And the owner uh, uh, sees King David, sees what he needs, and says, you take it. You know, this is yours, free of charge. And you can kind of imagine, right, a similar thing uh, whenever the the president walks into a restaurant or something or, or uses a certain area uh, on a tour or something of that nature, like nobody in the restaurant's going to charge him for a latte, right? It's like freebies on the house because it's the president and there's so much honor that's supposed to, to be there. And so similar situation, King David, who slayed 10,000 people, wow, offers him the threshing floor free of charge. And what does David say? He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so he actually pays for the field so that his worship means something. It is sacrificial in nature. Our singing will be a reflection of our hearts to the degree that our lives are sacrificially being offered to God in our time, in our talent, and in our treasure. When that's happening and, and the stars align, worship becomes so rich. You say, well, I, I haven't done anything right. <laughs> I've not given well. I've actually done all the wrong things. Can I still sing? yes. Because in that moment, you might be offering of your brokenness, vulnerability, things that you don't want anyone to see, offering of your pain. That is also sacrificial giving. But it must come from deep down within. What is the church? It is uh, a people, a group of people that God in his ancient desire has chosen to dwell with. But why do they exist? Because this is how God has mercifully chosen for us to relate to him. This is the way that he has chosen. And again, remember all the common distortions. It's not a building. I'm not saying it's only on Sunday morning. I'm saying this community, what he has made us to be, and in all the interlocking ways that we're we're bound together by the Holy Spirit, he uses that in the variety of uh, different facets uh, in which that is, this being one of many. But it is God's way to uh, relate to us on the deepest level. And again, not through mere singing, not through mere preaching, but all of those things coming together to conform us to Jesus, growing in union. So my last point is how do you experience that? There are, and I brought up functional, being a functional part of the body. I think it, it looks like Peter, I think, brings up at least four things. I think there's a few more than just four. I think there's maybe seven or eight, and I'll talk about that later in the year. But I just want to hoist before us what Peter says. I believe that if we were to even just try by the power of the Holy Spirit to to participate in some of these things, the questions of irrelevance would disappear. 
the questions of saying, that's not where I, I meet God, that's not how I meet God, would slowly start to diminish. If we took God's word seriously, I think we would tap in, in part, to the power of what it means to be God's people. The first one is worshiping together. We talked in length about that. I won't go over it, but offering to God what is valuable to us, the first fruits. We are a body, a group of people that lives our lives worshiping together. Sunday morning is a a reflection of that. Second, we are reaching together. How to be a functional member of the church where we are reaching together. I'm speaking uh, evangelistically about this. Peter goes on to say, all of these things are here that you, y'all, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that you could tell people who don't know anything about that how wonderful it is. Talking to non-believers about Jesus and what he has done for, for us. Do you do that? Or is there at least a point in, in your future where you are planning on that? Your coworkers, your friends, your family. Gosh, they need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear about his life-giving power. They're looking for that life-giving power in a variety of ways, and they're coming up short. And you have what they need. If we are not talking about Jesus in our town, we're doing it wrong. And perhaps we're not talking about Jesus because maybe we've lost a sense of his excellencies. Again, this is a call back to sit at the feet of Jesus and look at how excellent he is. To go back to Revelation, right? Go back to the things that we did at first when we were giddy little children in the faith. We are just like, all we could think about was Jesus. Whatever you were doing back then, Jesus says, go back to those things you did at first. Come back to your true former love. Third, we are forming together. We're, or we could say we're growing together. I love the word forming, though. It's so fun. We are forming together. God is forming us spiritually. Peter says this uh, in verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There it is, that tension. We don't belong here, but we're here intentionally. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, calling us uh, is what we talked about last week. As we live in this city, we are called uh, in two ways to put away the old nature and to take on the new. Put away the old nature and take on the new. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to grow into that identity. We begin to grow into God's power. This is all that that's speaking about, sanctification. We are forming together. And I love that he, he adds to this uh, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's almost like he's not just telling us to identify, uh, to uh, pull away and abstain from sin just for the sake of our own holiness, but almost as a witness to other people. That we ourselves and everyone around us can look at the quality of our lives even though we don't have all the stuff that everyone else has, even though we're not plunging into uh, all of the the pleasures of this world like everyone else does, and perhaps at a certain point they look at us and say, you're missing out, we're able through the quality of our lives, through through the vitality of our souls to say in a sense, no, who's missing out? My soul is so full right now because I have been peeling away by the power of the Holy Spirit everything that entangles it from my true love. Fourth and last, we are serving together. 
And we know that we're to serve one another in the church, but his emphasis right here is to serve people outside of the church. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This speaks to our integrity, that people will say wrong things about us. They will slander us. And our hope is that it will be slander and not gossip. It will be false accusations, not true ones. That it will, uh, and we will be able to, uh, we will be vindicated not by our protesting and arguing and putting ads in the paper and taking out ads in television and putting up a fuss, but simply by living a life that puts their accusations to shame. It speaks of integrity, but it speaks far more about uh, an inward-looking integrity. It actually speaks about, a, uh, about good works that affect those very people who are slandering us. We're not called to argue them into submission. We're called to live in such a way that they would want to ask us what the hope is that we have. And what do we do? We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Look at what he says. I want you to live your life in such a way that even those who hate you the most that speak against you will one day, they'll have no choice but to be like, yeah, hate what they stand for, hate what they believe, but love what they do. There may be moments in our history together where Santa Barbara, because of our differing cultural values, kingdom of values, may hate us. But they should, in their hatred, still be able to say, wow, reality Santa Barbara. Can't stand them, but wow, they're, they're really good to us. Timothy Keller once said, a church should be so tangibly, such a tangible blessing to the city that it occupies, that if they were to cease to exist at a church, the city would have to raise taxes to fill the void that that church once filled. Our presence here should not be talking only. It should be felt in every need that hurts and stings in this city. From uh, trafficking to poverty, to broken families to loneliness. In every possible felt need, our church should be seen and desired. I'm just going to end right there. You may say, well, I see all that this is supposed to accomplish, but what's in it for me? What's in it for you is Jesus. Jesus said, uh, excuse me, the, the apostle John said, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. You know that you have tasted and seen of the, the power and beauty of Jesus Christ when you are experiencing a supernatural love for each other. We were meant to be together in all of our quirks and in all of our mistakes and in all of our mess-ups, we are those messed-up, raggly people who have somehow, by God's mercy, been brought together to live life in Santa Barbara. The church is a picture of God's ancient desire to dwell with his people and through them to reach the rest of the world. You know what? You may, at this point, say, I, I see what you're saying, but the truth is, I've been hurt been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by people in the church, and I'm not ready to commit myself to people who have hurt me so deeply. 
I understand that. I've been hurt in the church too. And I'm like one of the, the leaders or whatever. I've been badly hurt. Want to know something else? I've been hurt by people in reality. Some of the deepest wounds that I carry with me today have been at reality. You know something worse? I have hurt people by the things that I have said, by the things that I have left unsaid, by the things that I have done and left undone. I've said stupid things in my pride. I've neglected people. I've felt wrong, uh, uh, thought wrongly about people. I've, I've acted out on bitterness and resentment. I have been that person. And in this room are a bunch of people who keep hurting each other. And perhaps that's why you don't want to commit to other people and get too close to them because you know that that's going to happen and it's going to happen. I want to show you what Peter seems to be arguing so deeply and profoundly about is that the beauty of the church isn't wrapped up in how good we are to one another. It's how merciful God has been towards us. That's the story, essentially, of the book of Hosea. It's not just that we hurt each other, but ultimately we hurt God. Have you ever read Hosea? It's one of the first of the minor prophets, and it starts off quite bizarre. God tells a prophet to marry a known prostitute in the city and to take her as his bride. And he even tells him up front, Hosea, prostitute's going to cheat on you. I have kids that aren't yours, and I want you to stick with this, that woman. And that is a picture of how Israel has treated me. God's people have treated me. They, they've cheated on me with all of their idols, their, their lovers. But the way you treat her is a picture of my love for God's people. And no matter how many mistakes they make, no matter how many times they fall to idolatry, I'll never be unfaithful to you. And he does it. And she keeps cheating on him. And time in and time again, he comes back to her. And they eventually have kids, and their kids aren't Hosea's. <laughs> in one of the most bizarre twists in the story, God has Hosea name the children, and the first child is named uh, Tells, uh, tells Hosea, name your first kid Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy, because uh, I'm, you know there's no mercy. And then the second kid, he says, name that one Lo Ami, which means you are not my people. Can you imagine the, the complex that, that that child would have growing up? <laughs> uh, what's your name? Not mine. <laughs> and God, uh, God looks at looks at this, these kids and say that. This is how you're acting towards me. And yet throughout, he, he makes this allotment for grace saying, but it's not always going to be that way. There's been no mercy, and you are not my people. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, after what we just read, you are a holy nation to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all of a sudden, he reaches back into Hosea and says, this is how you are. You truly have made all the mistakes humans can make against God and each other, but God remains faithful to you. 
so faithful and true is he to you in the cross of Jesus Christ that even though we have, metaphorically speaking, cheated against him, he remains faithful, and not only faithful, but he draws us close into transforming union with him. The beauty of the church is not in our inherent loveliness. It's in God's love for us despite our inherent ugliness. And if you resonate with that as we sing today, best response for you is just to fall on your face in the presence of God and receive and drink deeply of his mercy and just say, as a sacrifice of praise, thank you. Thank you, God, for you have not treated me as my sins deserve. Thank you that you have not left me in a pool of my sin, but you are forming me into your best version of who I'm supposed to be. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. Not that we love each other so well, but that God loves so well. And the church is supposed to be a living example of his love for undeserving people. Our role in that is not to be heroes, it's to be recipients of his love. And to the best of our ability, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to share that story with other people. What is the church? It's God's ancient desire to dwell with his people. Why does it exist? It's God's way of transforming those people. How do you tap into it? Allowing Christ in you, the hope of glory, to have his way. Let's surrender our lives to him as an act of worship today as we sing and may our hearts and our lips align with what God is doing in us. In Jesus' name.